Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sound Project podcast, Getting Undressed with God. The place where we talk about what you think, but don't say it. You believe, but won't discuss it. And you feel, but are too scared to share it. As always, I am your host, Pablo Giacopelli, and I am delighted that you could join us today. This is the first of several episodes where I'm going to be discussing the heart. Not that part that goes boom, 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 but instead the center of every human being, you know, that place within us where our true essence and identity can be found. In this episode, I'm going to begin by tackling a mistranslated scripture that in my view has been responsible for causing much damage and robbing many of the happiness and peace we can all experience when we finally allow our lives, as the Bible says, to begin from our hearts. So I invite you to sit back and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome once again to another edition of this podcast. I send you my greetings all the way from Israel and I just wanted to let you know that I'm very glad that you're here. Uh, today I'm going to be touching on a, a particular subject which uh, it's highly controversial uh, in the realms of Christianity. Um, there are differing opinions about it. Um, some will have nothing to do with it. Others, they understand that without it, any sort of real uh, life transforming spiritual journey is impossible. And there are those of us, of course, that are, uh, we are in between those two, where we find both arguments, uh, you know, um, acceptable, but we find it hard to actually, you know, make a decision on which one to subscribe to. Now, of course, what I'm talking about is our heart, the human heart. And I'm hoping that as I open up um, a few discoveries that I have made about it, um, and I will straight away tell you that um, I'm someone that lives uh, entirely from his heart. Now, this, of course, doesn't happen at the expense of my mind uh, or my uh, or my body uh, or even my spirit. But in fact, it is actually something that is fully integrated with all of those. Um, but for me, I have truly come into the reality uh, and discover the, the, the real truth of where the scripture that says that life begins in the heart. It doesn't begin in the mind. It doesn't begin in the flesh. It doesn't begin in our ego. It begins in the heart. Um, and as I have allowed God to show me um, what it is about the heart that uh, that is packed in there what is it that we find in there and what happens to our journey with him when we finally enter and live out of that realm and process life from that realm not from our dualistic mind but from that third way the kingdom way which of course i have shared before in several podcasts that of course we find within our hearts uh, what happens to our lives is truly transforming. We go from a transactional religion to a transformational journey with God. We go from a place where we are no longer, um, you know, dictated by shame and the disintegrating and distracting story that shame tells us. But we now begin to gain confidence to step out and follow the story that God has been telling about all of us, even before the beginning of time, which, of course, reintegrates us. 
And uh, last but not least, and of course there are many other dimensions, but of course I only have so much time that I can only mention these three, is we begin to truly experience the healing and the freedom that Jesus so eloquently shares with us throughout the Gospels. And then, of course, we see in the epistles where we are invited into a place where we walk away from who we think we are, uh, shaped by the wounds, the agreements, what others have told us in our lives, to a space where, you know, our bleeding wounds become these life-transforming scars that suddenly enable us to access our heart and, of course, discover who we truly are in Christ, which is, of course, the person that God had in mind uh, before he even laid the foundations of the world. Now, I have uh, lived long enough now to understand that whatever a person speaks or someone speaks about the most is because that's what interests them the most. And, uh, you know, with God, the heart is mentioned 800. The word heart in the Bible is mentioned 872 times. Give or take a few, okay, um, depending on what translation you're using. Now, out of those 872 times, about 832 times refers to our heart. The other times, it talks about the heart of the matter, the heart of God, things like that. But 832 times refers to our heart. Now, the word spirit appears in the Bible a little bit, around 690 times, 692 times. But it's only 192 of those times that it actually refers to our spirit. And the word, if you like, soul, it appears 292 times. Now, there is a huge disparity between mind, soul, and the heart. So clearly God is, is very interested. And in fact, today I'm more than ever convinced that this is what interests him the most, which is, of course, the condition of our heart. Now, there's a bit of a problem with this because of one verse that we find in Jeremiah 79 uh, that so many people have misused. And, you know, before we start to point fingers, they have only used what it actually says on the text. So they've read it, you know, and they have taken it on face value literally. And they have thought, well, that's what it says. Then that must be the case, in which case the heart is basically deceitful and extremely wicked. That's it. We cancel it out. We cancel all the 831 other verses and what it says about it. You know, like the life begins from the heart, you know, take care of your heart. Um, you, you know, the kingdom of heaven is within you, which is clearly within our hearts. Uh, and all these things that happen within our hearts and we find within our hearts, you know, like where Peter says, you know, the hidden person of the heart, which is, of course, our personality, our true identity. Um, all those things are discounted and, of course, no longer valid because of one verse that says that the heart is, of course, you know, deceitful and desperately wicked. Now, is that really what that verse originally said? Well, I believed it did for many years until, of course, I got to Israel, where I then, of course, began to not only learn Hebrew, but I also began to, you know, become part of the culture that Jesus was a part of as a human being. I began to frequent, you know, the people. I began to obviously run retreats in Israel. So I visited the places 
I also discovered the scriptures in Aramaic, which of course was the language that Jesus spoke. And I began to uncover a lot of things that, of course, I never knew before I came to Israel, which, of course, put me in a place where I had a vantage point that very few others have. And it is from this vantage point that I want to share and I want to start and and I just want to say I'm going to be unusually theological in this podcast because I think it's important that I... um, that I clarify what this uh, Jeremiah 79 actually really says. And once I do that in, the, in a theological way, um, I am going to, of course, then put it in a practical way. Uh, and I'm going to give you sort of some modern examples of what I will tell you from a theological point of view so you can kind of understand what it actually is trying to say. Okay, so this is this is where I'm going with this. And then, of course, I'll finish up with a few practical examples of what it's like to live from the heart. Uh, and, and really, my aim in this podcast is the hope that you are able to also come into this, if you like, no trespassing zone that for so many of us, we've been raised and we've been taught it's a no go zone. Uh, and you will actually be able to go through the tape. Uh, that lie that prevents you from accessing the full potential of your life or what God has put in you, the true identity is given you. Uh, and, uh, and of course, you will be able to experience life the abundant way that Jesus said he came to show us. Now, that said, of course, whilst you listen to this, if it varies from what you've been taught, please be gentle, be kind, be graceful. We all mean you know, we all mean to do our best with what we have. And, you know, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, I would have said to you, yeah, the heart is a no-go zone. It's desperately wicked. You know, it is not a good place. It's deceitful. Don't go there. You know, you, you listen to your mind. You just be calculative, be literal, you know, black and white. This is the way it is. Do this. Don't do that. Truth is this way or that way. Today, I see differently. And I know that that's not true what I just said. And the reason I know is because I have this ability to see, like I have this ability to hear, which often Jesus said, you know, let him who has ears to hear, hear. So there obviously are a different set of eyes in our lives that have nothing to do with the pretty ones we have in the front of our face or ears that have to do with anything of the ones we have on the side of our head. Uh, And so there's another set of eyes and another set of ears that we have access to if we process life from our hearts. Now, of course, as we all know, there are things that get on the way from us accessing like, you know, uh, theology that is not correct, uh, teaching that isn't necessarily uh, accurate. But there are also things that happen uh, to us in life, which, of course, prevents us from accessing our heart, which I will cover a little bit later. So with that in mind, uh, you know, sit back and I hope that you enjoy what I'm about to share with you, because I certainly loved it when I discovered it and it has made a world of difference not only to my life, but of course, my relationship with God and others. Now, in Jeremiah 79, the passage has been traditionally translated, give or take a word or two, but it it essentially reads this way. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, in my view today, that I believe it's an incorrect way to actually translate what it actually said on the original text. First of all, the translation does not make sense in the context of the verse, okay? I, for one, have long believed that the verse, as translated, is strangely out of context. 
you know, Jeremiah 17 begins with the context that the sin of Judah has become unerasable. You know, that's that's verses one through four. Then the Lord speaks about the cursedness of those who trust in man, which, of course, verse five and six. And then he goes on to the blessedness of those who trust in the Lord, verse seven and eight. And, you know, and he obviously makes a distinction between these two different groups of people. Now, immediately after he speaks of these blessed people, he says this verse in 17.9, which, of course, I just, uh, you know, I just mentioned. Now, after that verse, he follows it with the following statement. I, the Lord, search the heart, not the mind, not the ego. I search the heart, examining the affections, even to give to each one according to his ways, according to the fruit of his practices. Okay. Now, it would seem to me that the logic of the passage is that Judah has turned away from God and is, of course, cursed in, this, in, this, in the context of what we're reading. But that those who trust in the Lord, they are blessed. And then you see God searches the heart to determine whether one is trusting in man, which is obviously for us as well, or trusting in God. You know, so trusting in man or, you know, or our own abilities or our own, you know, you know, gifting and and whatever, or of course, trusting God. Now, if this is the flow of the passage, how does verse nine fit into that? I mean, think about it now, you know, to many people, uh, at least, you know, verse nine is used to describe the treachery of our own heart. And, you know, the heart cannot be trusted. It will always lead us astray. It is evil and corrupt. And this is in reality how the verse reads and what we are led to believe. Hence why so many people from the front will often tell us, don't listen to your heart. Don't follow your heart. Don't trust your heart because your heart is deceitful and it will lead you astray. Now, if the heart is so wicked, then what is the purpose and role of verse 10? In other words, why would God be searching the heart if he already knows it's wicked and no good? Now, in 2 Chronicles 69, the seer Hanani tells Asah that the eyes of the Lord are searching for those whose heart is loyal to him. Again, we see that there. We also know when Samuel goes to anoint David, God says to Samuel, Samuel, you look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. So again, you know, God, if, if, if the heart was wicked and that was the end of the story and it was deceitful, then God wouldn't even bother to look in there because God knows this is what it is. And, you know, it's like God looking in hell for something good. You know, we know in hell there's nothing good. Yeah. And so why would God go in there to look for something good if there is nothing good available and never will be there anything good available? So I hope you, you're sort of kind of following along with what I'm saying. Now, I struggle with this, uh, you know, a lot. Um, then, of course, as I began to learn Hebrew, I went back and looked again at this passage. And in verse nine, it's a simple seven word phrase in the Hebrew. And the verse says, and we'll just sort of put it in context, X, the heart above all and why it is. Now, who can know it? The question is the meaning of the X and the Y words. Now, the X word is akuf. It is found in its various grammatical forms in several places, but only in the following passages is it not clearly to be translated heel or heel track, you know, like a foot track. You know, we got some in Genesis 25, 26, 27, 36. 
We've got some in 2 Kings 10, in Job 37, Psalm 49, Hosea 6, we got Hosea 12, and then of course we got Jeremiah 9. Now the word is related to the word healed, and from which our name, you know, which the name Jacob comes. It came to mean, you know, the supplanter, the over acre. As we see in Genesis 27, 36, where Esau said to Jacob, he is not rightly named, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted a form of our word X, meet, you know, these two times. So he's, in fact, you know, he's deceived them. He looks away, you know, he took away my birthright and now look, he has taken away my blessing. You know, this is, of course, uh, Esau talking about Jacob. Now, it is true that Jacob practiced deception. We all know that. We've read it many times and we're aware of that. And especially when he took away the blessing. But the same is not true when Jacob bought the birthright. There was no deception present then. Okay? So that right there, again, you know, would, would seem that someone or whoever translated this was was into generalizing things he looked at something he looked at the overall picture and he took a general view of the situation and then he labeled it with a particular word he didn't actually look at it in detail all right now the word this word akuf may be translated to mean deceptive um you know and that seems to be pretty obvious this is the modern meaning of the word in fact in hebrew today and it is also, it's also is the apparent meaning in 2 Kings 10, 19, where Yehu is stated to have acted a kuf, often translated deceptively. It also seems to fit with Job 37, 4, where Elihu says of God, he thunders with his majestic voice and he does not a kuf them with his when his voice is heard. Deception would fit well with the idea that thunder and lightning go together. Thunder does not lead you into the thinking that there was lightning when there was not. The word also appears in Psalm 49.6, where it also seems to fit in with the idea of deception. However, the concepts of deceit and deception, as you and I both know, are not the same. Okay, and this is where we need to really be careful with this generalizing in the Bible. We, you know, the word deceit always carries with it an evil connotation, whereas deception does not. Okay. So in Psalm 49, 6, Hosea 6 and 8, and Hosea 12, 4, the only other places this word is in cognate forms is found outside of the places where it plainly means heel or heel track. In other words, footprints. And it seems to include a concept relating to the foot or footprints of Jacob. Now, given its Old Testament usage, it seems to me that the word may either mean overacre or deceptive. It does not necessarily have a negative implication as would the word deceitful nor is it generally translated as deceitful, okay? So I think it suffices to say that the person is gone and generalized and possibly has taken what he believed about the heart or what his experience was with the heart. And okay, and I, and I just want to say here, I am not judging the translator. I'm not judging anybody. I'm just trying to make sense of why someone would write this about the heart when in 831 other places, it's all positive, good stuff about it, okay? Uh, and then this is basically what got me going about this. Uh, and you will see now when I finish about the other word, where I'm, where I'm coming from, and that will obviously become hopefully more clear to you if it hasn't already. Now, the second word, which we obviously we gave it the, the letter Y, is the Hebrew word Anush. Now, this word is what the translators translated as desperately wicked. 
Now, it is found 10 times in the Old Testament. You can obviously do your own study. You know, you'll find some in 2 Samuel 12, Job, Psalms, obviously Jeremiah, Micah. And, you know, it, it's in there. You can, you can do a concordant study yourself. I'm not going to bore you with every scripture. Of course, I'm not going to go through it, but it's in there uh, 10 times. Now, could this word possibly mean desperately wicked? Well, let's have a look. In 2 Samuel 12, 15, it is used to describe David's baby son and is usually translated as sick. Okay, so not desperately wicked, but sick. Now, it makes little sense to translate this verse. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became desperately wicked. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me. Now, the idea of a life-threatening physical condition seems to be better, you know, be a better concept for the verse, very sick, okay, or very ill, or unhealthy, okay, which, you know, it works much better for the word. In Job 34, 6, Job speaks of his, of his wound as being anush, or very serious, sometimes translated as incurable. The idea seems to be that it's a life-threatening. In Isaiah 17:11, the word is translated as desperate sorrow. Again, the idea is life-threatening physical condition. In Jeremiah 15:8, Jeremiah speaks of his wounds, of his wound as being a nush. Here is translated incurable. So, you know, we could go on and on and on. Now, in none of these passages is the word translated desperately wicked. In none of the other passages is there a moral meaning to the term, right? Which, of course, is what this desperately wicked is trying to label the heart as morally corrupt, you know, as desperately wicked. So, you know, it just tends to always focus on a physical condition. Now, there is one other, um, you know, verse in Psalm 69, uh, verse 20. And, you know, the reason that, I'm going to share this at the end is because, you know, for me, this is what kind of also gave me some sort of inclination that this desperately wicked didn't fit with what obviously was being attempted to be communicated by Jeremiah on the original text. Okay, now in this passage, in obviously Psalm 6920, Anush is used to describe the heart of Christ. Now, you know, you can read it yourself. But obviously it reads, reproach has broken my heart and I am full of a nush. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink, which of course is talking about the cross. To translate a nush here as desperately wicked, I don't think it's such a good idea. Jesus was not full of wickedness, at least not the one that I follow, but full of deep an intense sorrow, which of course, as we know, is what happened to him on the cross to the point of death. You know, this was a life-threatening physical condition. Now, because there is no support in any of the rest of the passages for a meaning of desperately wicked as a proper meaning of a nush, I think it is wrong to singularly attach that meaning to the word in Jeremiah 17.9. So what I believe Jeremiah originally intended to write, and I'm not saying this is what he wrote for sure, but I believe he wrote something along these lines, was that the heart is complex, right? From the idea of, you know, deceptively unknowable. So in other words, you know, it is not something that one knows for sure. It requires a journey. It requires a walk of faith. 
It requires mystery. It requires walking into spaces where we have no control. And of course, it's fragile, you know, along the lines of being extremely vulnerable and that if it's not healed by God because of the wounding it acquires during our lives, then it can literally become a life-threatening condition from within us. And we all know that, of course, our emotions are packed within our hearts and that emotions or unhealthy emotions today are one of the biggest consequences for people becoming terminally ill. You know, we have, I have often seen, because of course I'm in, uh, I was in sports before and I still from time to time read, people that are extremely healthy people. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they exercise, they eat well, they take vitamins. I mean, they, they are like these well-oiled machines and yet they suddenly get terminal cancer and die. It doesn't make any sense, but it does begin to make some sense when you look into their lives and you see the emotional heartache, the wounding, the, 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 the destructive situations that they experienced as children. You begin to understand that that what happened within them, the impact that had within them, it actually became a life threatening condition, which, of course, went on to kill them. And of course, you know, this is something that is it's a well-known fact in the world. If you don't know, well, you do now. Uh, and it's something that, of course, I have seen in my own family through very close family members who have faced uh, life-threatening diseases. So, you know, from, from, from what I just sort of kind of share with you, it would appear that in, you know, that in verse 10 flows now much more naturally also with the other things, the other verses that seem to be around, you know, so if Jeremiah 79 means the heart is complex and fragile, who can know it, then verse 10 begins to also make more sense. Yeah. So God searches this complex and fragile thing to give to each one according to his ways. For the ways of man from flow, life begins and the way of man flow from the complex and, you know, from this complex and fragile heart, as Jesus taught us, you know, it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. It is from here that life begins. You know, Jesus speaks about rivers of living water flowing from within us. Yeah, and so the heart, you know, in uh, I believe it's the Psalms or Proverbs, it says the heart is a, it's a well of very deep waters and it is understanding that draws it out. So again, you know, God clearly searches that because he knows that that's where life begins. He knows what he put within there. He knows the capacity, the goodness, the, the truth that is packed within there. Uh, you know, our emotions, our personality, our true identity that carries his spiritual DNA, the kingdom, his presence in our lives. That is the center of our lives. God knows what's in there. But he also knows that in this life, we have an enemy that always aims to destroy us emotionally. And he does that by obviously wounding us at a very deep place within our hearts. So he kind of like, because when he does that, he of course deactivates and shuts the hearts down. Now that we have sort of set a good theological foundation down, which I hope, um, you know, has at least begun to help you understand the perspective that I'm trying to share here. And of course, there's a lot more I could share about theologically wise. We could go even deeper than, than what I shared. And by the way, um, it might have sounded like I was reading uh, and I was reading some of my old notes because, of course, you know, whilst I believe that the heart 
is deceptive and fragile or complex and fragile. I don't remember all the scriptures and everything. So some of the what I shared with you before was being read. Okay. Um, nevertheless, it doesn't make it any less valuable or not from my heart, because, of course, it originally came from my heart when I wrote it. Um, but the, the, the reality is that, um, you know, what what I have obviously put down is just the basics of where I begin to see the mistranslation and, of course, the misuse of that verse to disqualify the rest of the Bible and what it has to say about the heart, but more so take away our attention from the very thing that God mostly places his attention on our lives, which is, of course, the condition of our hearts. Now, as I said to you at the beginning, I, I want to take what Jeremiah said and I want to put it into a modern, if you like, um, picture to help you understand, you know, how this could have been mistranslated and, and how it, it, it came to be the way it is and perhaps what it would look like if we were talking about a modern situation. OK, so what I like you to do with me is I like you to pretend a scenario. Uh, let's just say that you walk into your in an airport or your, you know, your local airport, whatever you're, you're going to catch a flight and you get approached by a TV reporter. You know, she has her microphone or he has his microphone and they're doing just a research of what people think about airplanes. And he comes and he says to you, Hey, listen, uh, what do you think about an airplane to which you think? And then you say, well, it's actually risky and fragile. Now, how would you feel uh, if that same reporter later on, you switch the TV on and she quoted you as saying that an airplane was actually dangerous and unreliable. Now, I think, you know, not only you, but imagine the, the people that made the airplane, you would feel pretty upset by that because let's face it, it was a complete deception and turnaround and false assumption of what you said and what you actually meant when you said it. Right. So in other words, what this person is communicating to the people watching TV is more along the lines of what he or she probably believes or sees the airplane as. So they believe the airplane is unreliable, is dangerous. So they take your words out of context, which words like that can be taken out of context and be made to with a little bit of craft mean to mean something else. Right. Uh, and, and actually communicate a totally different message, you know, to someone else about an airplane. So the effect this will obviously have on people that don't know anything about an airplane. They'll be like, well, the airplane is unreliable and dangerous. You want to stay away from there. Now, while they stay away from there, they may get this false feeling of safety and not being exposed to something that is potentially going to kill them. But the reality is they're being robbed of experiencing the world, being experiencing other cultures, expanding their horizons and actually enriching their lives in a way that travel does, which nothing else actually can in your life. So, you know, it's like this misconception of what is it about? It, it's actually robbing them of experiencing life at the fullest. Now, let's look at the, at the risky part. Um, the risky part in an airplane, if you, if you like, it is actually the, you know, it is actually the, the risky part that of course, you know, is what makes it what it is. You know, you take a risk by leaving your home, getting on a tube, flying at 500, 600 miles an hour through all kinds of conditions. 
and getting to the other side of the world. You take the risk. You become vulnerable. You, you entrust yourselves, right, to mystery. Because let's face it, when you walk on an airplane, you don't know what's going to happen. You really don't. I mean, you know, chances are, because it is the safest way to travel, that you're going to get to the other side. But just like when you get in your car and you go on the road, anything can happen. And for those of us that have had accidents, you know, we can tell you very easily, and, and all of us will know, that when we went out and the accident happened, it was like any other time we went out. We were not expecting to get into an accident. We were aware that this, of course, is a possibility, but we never actually expect it just happened okay so you are always entrusting yourselves onto the you know with through faith onto the hands of grace and it's the same thing when we live from our hearts when we live from our hearts we enter into our dimension where we let go of the control in our lives because we come into a space where we rely on grace we rely on faith we entrust god with the results of our of our lives but like with flying, we begin to experience a dimension and a reality that staying at home, in the case of the airplane, or living from our mind instead of entering and living from our hearts, yeah, it just we will never experience this reality, this dimension, by not engaging in the heart, just like we will not experience a different culture, a different part of, the, of God's creation by staying at home and not entering and taking the risk of actually going in there. And I think that's why Jeremiah says, you know, it's deceptive. You know, the plane is risky. The heart is deceptive. It has the capacity to be deceitful if it is, you know, obviously not managed and cared for properly and approached in the right way, just like the airplane has the capacity to become dangerous instead of just risky if it's not maintained and taken care of and flown in the way that is meant to be flown, okay? Now to the fragile part, you know, funny enough, it is actually an airplane's fragility and flexibility that actually enables it to perform in flight and stay up there, you know, even though it encounters great forces of nature, that if it was solid structured, it would just crack into and break. And it's the same with the heart. You know, I, I believe God knew already when he created us what would happen in the world what would happen to creation and so you know our hearts became like this this you know this this fragility of our hearts is what enables us to, to you know to absorb the, the sucker punches that life throws at us you know the wounding that reality that, that, that other broken people inflict on us just like we inflict on them and just the ju just the hurt the pain that we encounter in our lives in our journey he knew that if our hearts were solid like a rock, every time we got a knock from life, we would just crack and we would just disappear. So it almost like a punchy bag. It has this capacity to absorb the fragility of the heart, the vulnerability of the heart. It actually has the capacity to absorb and it has the capacity to withstand the things that life throws at us. Now, as we come to the end of the podcast, um, I think it's important to understand, like with an airplane, our hearts, the only way that we can experience what it is like, we need to get inside of them. We can't, you know, we can watch a plane fly by. We can hear someone like myself talk about the heart and what it's like to live out of it. But where we truly, really come into the experiencing, uh, the experience of what is really like is we need to get inside. 
Now, you and I both know that that very much depends on what kind of journey we subscribe to. Obviously, with the airplane, unlike with the heart, at the end of the day, if we want to travel, if we have to go anywhere for work, pleasure, whatever, we, we have no choice. We have to get in a car. I mean, some people will go to the extent where they take a boat and they spend a month crossing the Atlantic when it obviously takes only 10 hours on a plane. Yes, I have heard of people do that. But the reality is most of us, we just, you know, suck up the fear and we get on the plane and we do it. And of course, it's not really an enjoyable as an enjoyable an experience as it can be flying. Because, of course, we are more aware of the fact that it's risky and fragile than we are of what it's actually bringing us into. Same thing with the heart. You know, unless we, we are actually enter our hearts, we obviously face what we encounter there, which is often at first much wounding, pain and suffering. And we allow God to obviously enable us, you know, uh, to trust him with that and, and allow him to heal us. We, of course you know, we'll never ever be able to know what a life is like that begins from the heart and flows out of the heart. We will live our lives on the top 10 inches of our body, which is, of course, our heads, our minds and our ego. Now, this choice is really says a lot about the journey that we subscribe to. If we are people that, of course, are all for results, behavioral modification, and we measure our worth and we measure our progress and we measure how proud God is of us and how much he loves us, then, of course, what we're going to do is we are never going to subscribe to anything that has even the slightest hint of mysterious, where it requires faith, where there is a risk involved, because we want stuff that is solid. We want stuff that is guaranteed to give us result and give it to us when we believe we need them and we deserve to have them. Now, to those of us that subscribe to that kind of journey, I would just say this. You know, consider the fact that taking one mistranslated verse and using it not only to limit your life, but if you're in a position of leadership or in any capacity where you are, where people are listening to you, you're taking one mistranslated verse and you're limiting not only people from entering the only place within them where they have a and you know, have the possibility of discovering who they truly are, who God truly is, right? So who they are in Christ and who God is in them, right? But you're also preventing them from entering into the only place within us where we're able to truly experience, not just know about, but truly experience God's rest, peace, and unconditional love. And just as I close, I leave you with this thought. If we... If we choose to stay in control of our lives and we choose not to take a risk, you know, with our hearts, like with the airplane, you know, we will never ever experience or discover new dimensions. We will never experience or discover new shores and we will never fully come into the full reality of who God intended us to be before he even created us, the person that he had in mind. And also, we will never truly understand or discover really anything of value about God. All we will know is based on the information that has been passed on to us, usually by others that have had that in their information passed on to them from others. Because let's face it, in the body of Christ, as sad as it is to say, so few of us actually experience the life that Jesus came to share with us.
so few of us actually experience healing, freedom, and deliverance from the things that plague us every day. Very few of us know what it's like to live without fear, anxiety, and anguish. And the reason I believe this is, is because through one mistranslated verse, we stay away from the very place that if we allow God to usher us in there. And by the way, when Jesus says, follow me, I believe what he's saying is follow me back into your heart. Follow me back into the place where life begins. The Bible says, you know, we will struggle to follow Jesus and we will struggle to live a life that is ever has any chance of actually coming into the happiness and the peace that can only be delivered as we do life with God from within our hearts. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for taking the time to be with me. I'm going to be going away on holiday uh, this Saturdays for the next couple of weeks. I'm very sorry, but there will not be a podcast. But I, I promise you when I return, I will be fully charged physically. And of course, uh, no doubt there will be new insights that I'm sure dad would have shared with me while I'm away from the routine of life and that I will only be too happy to pass on to you through this, of course, podcast that I am enjoying so much sharing with you. So wherever you are and whoever you are, be blessed, stay encouraged, and as always, may you continue to know that wonderful inner embrace of the resurrected Christ within your heart. I send you my shalom and my peace. Until next time, bye-bye. Friends, thank you for listening to the Zone Project Podcast, Getting Undressed with God. We have come to the end of another episode, and I sincerely hope that it has been enjoyable, a blessing, but above all else, it has led you to perhaps consider perspectives you have never seen before. For more information about the Zone Project, this podcast, and all the other work that I put out on a regular basis, please take some time to check out the show notes where you will find the relevant links. As for me, I hope that you can join me again. So until next time, thank you and Shalom.